If I hadn't said hello, my name's Lance. It's a gift, a joy to pastor here. And one of the things that I get to do often is to consider the Bible with us as a church. And so my prayer, my heart's desire this week is that we would learn together. Uh, One of the things that we're considering this summer is the kind of people that we ought to be because, not if, because God's Spirit indwells us. We have the Spirit of Jesus, not only in our midst here as His gathered people, but individually with us everywhere we go till the end of the age, Spirit of Jesus with us, in us, forming us. And Scripture tells us that because we have the Spirit of Jesus, there's a particular kind of fruit. We're a particular kind of tree that's been planted. Therefore, that tree produces a particular kind of fruit. And what we want to do this summer is to consider these fruits that should be evident in anyone who claims Jesus. You wear the jersey. If you say, I'm a Christian, that legitimately means I am a little Christ then the evidence over the course of time, not all at once, not in a judgy spirit like hurry up, we'll get to patience, not like hurry up, but over the course of time you should be committed to seeing the reality of these fruits coming to bear in your life. This morning we're going to consider the fruit of peace. What does it look like to be a person of peace? What significance does the concept of peace have in Scripture, and how does it come to bear in Jesus and then flow through our lives into the world? Now, peace, like love, when we, that I last talked about with you, is a massive concept. And in some ways, you could say, well, it's as big as the Bible if you really want to get to it. I acknowledge that, and there is no way this morning that I'm going to say everything that could or should be said about peace over the long haul. But I'm going to try my best, and I hope that we can follow along together to get at the heart of what kind of people we should be, be becoming, be becoming, it's hard to say, because we're in Jesus. So this is the 13th verse of Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 13 down through verse 22, and then we're going to pause. I'm going to pray for us so that we'd understand the Bible, and we'll talk about it together. Verse 13 Ephesians chapter 2. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you, to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Just for a moment, let's pause and pray. God, we acknowledge our inadequacy. We're not able, we're not smart enough or spiritual enough to understand these things on our own, and so we're grateful for your Spirit. You've made us 
the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, rest here, dwell here, be at work here. Mainly, Spirit of God, would you open our eyes to see marvelous things from Scripture? Would you open our eyes to see the reality of Jesus for us and with us and in us? And God, I ask that despite all of our distractions, our hurts, our confusions, the ways that we don't see eye to eye all the time, we pray that you would break through all of that and you would unite us as your children here this morning. We want to learn. We want to grow. We want to be more like Jesus. So help us. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. It's going to be pretty straightforward this morning. As I go through Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to talk about peace in a few different ways. First, I want to consider and think about the promise of peace. What is promised to us in the reality or the concept of peace? What does that even mean? What we're going to find, I think, in the promise of peace is that it's a lot like hope. And then after that, I think Ephesians chapter 2, as it walks us through what this peace should look like, is twofold. One, we're going to consider the person of peace, the person of peace. And in this, the, the emphasis is on the, the person of peace. And then finally, what does it mean for us to be a people of peace? So there's a promise of peace, there's the person of peace, and then finally, a people of peace. That's, I think, what Ephesians chapter 2 would give to us. It's not all there is to say about this topic, but I think it'll be enough for this morning and hopefully enough to move us closer to the image of Jesus. The first thing to say is, peace is a hopeful thing. Peace is something that we should desire. Peace is promised by God as an answer to the inherent hostility, the inherent chaos that we feel both inwardly and outwardly as we meet people in a fallen world. Peace has been necessary. In fact, it's been the one hope of all of those who place their hope in God. It's been the one hope since the fall in the garden. Sin came into the world and sin did what sin does. It alienates, it separates, it destroys. And from the moment of that first sin, there has been hope declared by God that one day all that had been torn apart, all that had been broken would be put back, that there would be a sense of wholeness. And the main word that's used all throughout the Old Testament for the idea of peace is shalom. Shalom carried with it, used hundreds of times in the Old Testament, shalom carried with it not only the idea of we're not at war right now. I mean, everyone wants that kind of peace. No one wants to have their hand on the pistol all the time. Some of us say we don't even have a pistol, so that'd be hard to do, but it doesn't just mean I'm not at war currently in this moment, but shalom, this hope that God promises that He's going to bring in the world that is broken and alienated from Him and from one another, shalom brings with it an idea of wholeness, wholeness in a whole person. It often carried with it connotations of blessing, of material, emotional, physical, and spiritual rest. Peace, the idea that what had been slightly ajar, slightly off kilter, and then sometimes drastically shattered, that these things could be put back together. God has declared that somehow through His working that He would be able to do the impossible. 
You know the Humpty Dumpty song? Isn't Humpty Dumpty like the, the guy who fell off the wall? Isn't he the one? And they said they couldn't find anyone to put him back together again. Well, because everybody knows, you know, egg cracks and it's just there. I mean, there's just nothing to do but make an omelet, right, at that point. It's just not, it, you can cry about it. You could say, oh, no, there's a crack. It's the funniest thing. I remember as a kid going grocery shopping with my mom and everyone looking through the eggs. And they just don't buy them if there's a cracked one in there. Do you know this trick? Some of you college students are like, whoa, what? You mean I have to buy my own food? Yes, don't <laughs> buy the cracked ones. And I remember thinking how strange it was. Huh, just no hope for you. You're cracked. Just countless cartons of eggs just being tossed to the side. No one's going to ever do that. You know why? Because everyone knows, well, it's a cracked egg. It's broken. It's gone. There's nothing to do with that anymore. What God promises down through the Old Testament, this idea of shalom, is so fully orbed, it's as though he's saying that by my spirit, I'm going to be able to put back together the egg. I will mend every crack. I will make whole again, useful again, full again, what has been shattered. And this promise is so powerful, so astonishing, so full all throughout the Old Testament that God's people could scarcely believe that it would be reality. In fact, the problem most of the time with God's people, as it was in the Old Testament and maybe even now, the problem is often that we don't have the faith to believe that God could actually do what He says He can do. So many of us live with the, the small little instinct or the little bit of a suspicion to say, I'm broken in a particular way that will never, ever, ever be fixed. And it's as though God constantly has to, I think some of the reason that hundreds of times he calls out and he says, I will give you rest, I will give you peace, I will bring you back, shalom, 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 is because it's so hard for people who get so used to brokenness to ever believe that things could be put back. And yet, if you take time to listen, put your ear to the heavens, you will hear a God again and again and again and again declaring peace, wholeness. You may not see it in this life, but there is a coming day, God says over and over again, when peace will reign. One of those instances is recorded in Haggai chapter 2. Now, for those of you who don't have Haggai memorized, uh, I'm going to put it on the screens for you. Haggai chapter 2, this is a common refrain in the minor prophets especially, those who were to describe. They had a, they had a tough job. They had a job that oftentimes was to declare the reality of the brokenness of sin and the wrath of God that was coming, but then also to convince his people that if they would just turn to God that he could actually put things back together again. Verse 6 of Haggai chapter 2. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house, he's talking of the temple, shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. I will bring shalom. I will give peace. Earlier in Haggai chapter 2, the Lord cries out and he says, does anyone here remember the former glory of the temple? Does anyone even remember? 
There's numerous instances throughout Israel's history where those who knew the glory of the former temple would remember it and they would just weep. They would see where they were at currently. They would see the tents. They would see the broken down nature. They would see the fact that they were in exile and they would just weep to remember the former glory of the temple. But God continued to come to them and insist over and over and over again that despite the fact that they were politically displaced, despite the fact that they did not have the land that had been theirs and been promised to them, despite the fact that they were not rich, despite the fact that their sins had alienated them and they had watched their brothers and sisters in the faith of Israel walk away from God over and over again, that a day would be coming when peace would not only be possible, but it would be certain. And he says that in that day, according to this, there would be a kind of shaking when my spirit comes, and that all the treasures of the world would come back in, rushing into God's people. And in that place, they would experience once again something that had been lost. They would finally have, there would be a restored peace. And this kind of peace is all-encompassing. It means that they would be at peace with Him, their Lord. It would be, they would be at peace with one another. They would be at peace with the nations around them. They would be at peace and made whole in riches, in the things that they had. Full provision, needs met, emotional satisfaction, relational tension gone, just enjoying full peace. And this wholeness, this promise, could scarcely be believed. How could it be possible? What does it look like for someone to even hope for peace like this? In fact, one of, I think, Israel's greatest problems, and perhaps ours too, is that we've forgotten how to even hope for something like this. Partly because we know the reality of sin in this world. We don't want to get our hopes up because we think, well, I'm just going to think it's going to happen here. I'm going to become impatient. I'm going to become bitter. But the reality is that God has promised an ability perhaps incrementally and slowly here, but an ability for us to hope, to place our hope in Him that one day full and whole and total and true peace will come. We get used to living fragmented lives. We get too comfortable with enmity. We make peace, not with peace, but we make peace with war. One of the questions that I had to ask myself when I thought through, you know, you read, especially the Old Testament, you read through and you think like, why is Israel so dumb? Why don't they just believe God? Why don't they, why don't they, why don't they? And I thought of how many times I've given up on relationships and thought to myself, well, that's just gone. There's just no way. The list of names that I could put that I thought, well, I don't even pray about that anymore. I just don't expect there could be any, any, ever cha- any change there ever. In other words, I've given up on the possibility of peace. I think that it's so Pollyannish, so beyond that I've just given up. I think about things like political divides. Have you given up hope? Is that weird uncle ever going to be at peace again? Think about spiritual divides. Could God bring peace as the church disappointed you so many times, this is one that I could confess to you, if I hear one more story of people that I love serving in churches and finding nothing but conflict, 
just makes my stomach churn. I mean, do you, do you think that peace is possible? Have we given up hope? Is it, even, is it even something that we should hope for? I think the one place that I haven't given up hope because I believe that heaven is coming is I do believe that I'll may be made bodily whole one day. I can't wait for my new body. Somehow, I just want to transfer. You know how when you get old and you go to the doctor, the big joke is, Again, I think it's a Brian Regan thing. Turns out a lot of my worldview is based on Brian Regan as a comedian, but he talks about how you go to the doctor, you know you've gotten old where they just stop trying to fix it anymore. Like when you're younger, you go to the doctor, you say, my knee hurts. He says, oh man, we better get a scan. We better do this. We're going to try to fix this up. He's like, and then I reached an age where I went to the doctor and I told him that and he just said, well, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be like that. I don't expect that I'm going to be made whole bodily here, but I'm, I'm longing for it and I can't wait for it in the future. But I wonder which of these promises, which of this hope, what is God teaching us about the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and about the longing for peace? What is it about this wholeness that God designed us for? What can we grasp onto and what should we have not given up hope for here and now? It seems to me that when Jesus indwells us, when we become incrementally more and more like him, that we dare to hope for peace a little bit more, even here and now. That perhaps our list of things that we've written off, we pick it back up. We cross things off the list of never, we put it on the list of hopeful, or prayerful, or please. Not in a demanding kind of way, but in a, in a way that says, I, I believe that God is still the God who can put together a broken egg. He's still that same God. You don't build your life on the need for that kind of thing, but you're not the kind of person who has become cynical, and every time something starts to show a crack, crack you throw it back in the grocery aisle. Now the question becomes, how is it possible that a world that has learned to live with such shatteredness, such brokenness, our bodies are falling apart, economies are failing, there's viruses everywhere, political divides, religious divides, family divides. More than that, the greatest and insurmountable spiritual divide ever, we have been separated from God. It's the reality of Scripture. It tells us we're separated from Him by sin. How is it possible that God would bring peace? Well, this promise of peace, it turns out, what starts out as a, as a great promise of shalom over all, starts to become pinpointed down through the teaching of Scripture, and the anticipation begins to grow that eventually the way that God would accomplish this, the promise of peace would come about through a person through his son. And so, what the writers of the Old Testament begin to do, not only the concept of peace, inviting people to say, remember that God can bring this, but more than that, look for his activity and his work in a person of peace. And it's where we get beloved prophecies like Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, from a big idea of, can you hope for this kind of thing now? comes down to a point in a person. Isaiah 9, starting in verse 6, 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace. What an interesting thing to throw in there. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God tells his people, first and foremost, I'm promising peace. I've not given up on wholeness. And second, I am zealous to do this, and I will do this by bringing about a prince of peace. I will send one on the throne of David who will rule perfectly over a kingdom, who will uphold and establish peace forever. And what will happen is that this brokenness will slowly begin to be mended. Starting in the person of Jesus, we are in the early stages of a great mending that will stretch on into eternity. Beginning with the person of Jesus, he will declare peace to the world and slowly melding, putting together God's spirit, his zeal, working to bring a never-ending increase of peace. Where do I sign up for this? Do you ever feel like the world is one never-ending increase of hostility? think God has seen that as well, which is why he moves so zealously and says, there is hope. I will send my ambassador of peace, my prince of peace, my king. And in his kingdom, there will be a never-ending increase of peace. This person This promise from Isaiah chapter 9 comes to fruition, of course, in the person of Jesus Christ. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that in Jesus, in Christ, we have been reconciled to God. That Christ Jesus not only becomes the hope of peace, but he is peace himself. Verse 14 of Ephesians 2 that we read, he himself is our peace. And listen to the things that he did. Just these words from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 is living on the other side of this promise from Isaiah chapter 9, and listen to the kind of words. This is what Jesus is and what he's about. That This spirit lives in us. We've been brought near. We've been made one. In his flesh was broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He abolished the law of commandments. He created in himself one new man. He made peace. He reconciled. He killed the hostility. He preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near. In him we have access in one spirit. We're no longer strangers and aliens, but now fellow citizens. We're built on one foundation, a foundation of Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. We're being joined together, growing, built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It sounds to me like Jesus is bringing about in his person the promise of God from the beginning since the fall, and that is is that peace could be possible. Jesus himself stood in the gap. He erased the enmity that existed between us and God our Father. He absorbed the wrath of God perfectly for sin and then brought us to the Father through the resurrection. That when we have faith in him, all that was lost in our sin can be made right, and we are put back together in wholeness with God our Creator. He calls us His children. 
That message, Scripture says, is the thing that Jesus preached. It's why we have a rock-solid, never-ending commitment to constantly preach Jesus and the reality that you can be reconciled to God. It will never, ever grow wearisome to us. When you meet someone and you tell them, did you know that you can be reconciled to God? Did you know that the hostility that exists between you and your Creator can be done away with? So here's a question for me. If the first question or the promise of peace was, do I believe this promise? Have I given up on the reality of even peace? Here's a second thing. Is it boring to me that Jesus Christ came and made peace with God the Father? Has that become a small thing? Let me give you an antidote. If the peace that Jesus Christ offers us with God has become small to you, here's one antidote. Consider your sin more consistently. You know what will make you think that what Jesus has done to bring peace is small is if you think you're basically kind of okay and you thank, you thank him maybe for the, for the help. You know, I need a little direction. But when and because you realize that you were completely separated, that your sin made it impossible for you to be in the presence of God for even one millisecond, When by the work of the Spirit you realize that you are far more sinful, far more gone, far more at war with God than you ever dared to think, then Jesus coming and being your peace will become sweeter and sweeter and sweeter to you. Our goal as Christians is not to need Jesus less as we go on. But you should be moved by the Spirit of God consistently in a constant practice of repentance so that you realize this peace that's offered you by Jesus Christ is the sweetest, greatest promise. It is, in many ways, the gospel itself. What is the thing that Jesus preached? The possibility of peace. And if that is not sweet to you, if that is not a reality for you, if you have not seen the hostility and the destruction and the shatteredness of the world and transferred your allegiance to the Prince of Peace who offers you wholeness and reconciliation with God, if that is not a sweet thing for you, then you have made too little of your sin and hostility. You've missed the entirety of the preaching of Jesus. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 says. Whatever else Jesus said, it's why it will not do to have Jesus as a mere good teacher or a moral instructor He either is the pathway, the sole pathway to peace with God, and if you have an awareness of your sin, that will become so precious to you that you'll cling to Jesus and want to give up anything else if you could just have Him. Then you'll know that you finally started to get it. What did Jesus preach? Peace. Who did He preach it to? Well, only those people who are far off and those who were near. It's like my grandpa saying, I only eat ice cream on days that end in Y. Or I only eat ice cream when I'm alone or with somebody. That's who Jesus preached to. Jesus only preached peace when he was alone or with somebody. Peace through him. He himself is our peace. It's why generic spirituality will never do. It's why deism will never do. Because every other form of religion has not dealt with the main problem of humanity, and that is that we've been shattered in our relationship with our Creator. 
the message of the gospel over and over and over again is God who promised peace and the possibility of shalom has begun the process of mending by the great shaking of the world and sending His Son. All richness is in Him. God's presence dwells in Him. He becomes the temple on our behalf. He absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. He carries us through to heaven on our behalf. He sits forever interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. We are anticipating the fruit of peace in our lives because we have the Spirit of Jesus who Himself is peace. Finally, the question becomes, so what does it mean for us to be a people of peace? How do we get in on this? God, remember, since the beginning of the fall, said, my zeal is for one thing. I'm going to bring shalom in the world, full wholeness. He accomplished this zealously by sending Jesus, who is a person of peace, and then Jesus leaves his spirit to indwell us and says, you're going to slowly become like me. The question is, how do we become a part of this program? Are we those who have realized what God is doing in the world? Did you know that what God is doing zealously in the world is bringing about wholeness and reconciliation and peace? Where he sees hostility, he wants to put it to an end. That ultimately, there will be a perfect judgment in the world. No more files left unfiled. Nothing out of place. He will establish peace perfectly. Of the increase of peace, there will be no end. Sometimes peace will come by perfect justice being handed out. Other times peace will come through perfect mercy being handed through Jesus. But there will be peace. That's what God says. And those of us who are a part of his family then have inherited and should anticipate the the fruit of peacemaking in our lives. Ephesians chapter 2 is trying to convince both Gentiles and Jews alike that it's possible that they could live in harmony with one another. See, it's not just Old Testament faithful who had a hard time believing that peace was possible. It turns out that almost every, every single argument of the New Testament is them trying to reconcile the fact that somehow they could be at peace with one another. So many dividing lines, so many barriers. Some of the barriers were actually physical. You know, that at the temple, there was actually a massive stone wall that had been set up. This idea, you know, in Ephesians 2 when he's preaching through and he says, or he's teaching through and he says that Jesus tore down the dividing walls of hostility, there were literal walls. Josephus tells us that there were walls between 8 to 10 feet high constructed of very thick stone around the entirety of the temple. And there were signs printed in Greek and in Roman letters, that no foreigner should ever go within that sanctuary. In fact, there are notices that have survived down through the last couple thousand years, and the wording on these limestone slabs is still there that shows the kind of dividing wall. There, attached to massive actual walls before you could enter into God's presence, they find written... Words like this, no foreigner may ever enter here within this barrier and enclosure that surrounds the temple. Anyone caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And we know that they took this seriously because Paul would start riots by simply bringing a Gentile into the courts of the temple. 
you remember this? Paul brings a foreigner just inside the outside of the wall, and everyone immediately is like, where do we and how do we kill him as fast as we can? And Jesus, in his message, living on through the apostles, was to try to get it through to those people who had spent their whole lives creating barriers and dividing walls that in Christ they ought to be living at peace with one another. That there was now one people, one hope, one way to live. And so, because there were so many problems with peace between groups of people in the New Testament, we find consistent commands in nearly every letter of the New Testament for them to live peaceably. One of my favorites is in Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, 16 through 19. He says very plainly, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul tells the church in Rome, live in harmony with one another. He emphasizes for 11 chapters the reality of the spiritual peace we have with God, but what is so funny is how often those who insist on spiritual peace with God never ever see the fruit of that in the actual re-relationships with human beings around them. And Paul says, don't make that mistake. Don't be people who latch on to the first 11 chapters of Romans and talk about peace with God, but then allow enmity and hostility to exist between everyone around you. Live in harmony with one another. Here's the reality. We cannot be those people who preach what Jesus preached, preach Him to be the person of peace, but then be constantly snarky and suspicious and building hostility with everyone around us. If there is a wake of hostility, a wake of division behind you everywhere you go, it is not the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus in your life. Now, there may be hostility. You see, that's the thing. I love verse 18 of Romans chapter 12 because of these first phrases, if possible. And I think that what Paul realizes is this is not always going to be possible. Paul would declare the right things. People would hate him. So he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, in other words, you can't live another person's life for them, but if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What he's saying is there needs to be the reality of the peace of Jesus, the peace that we've experienced, actually coming to bear in your life. a good question for us. Have we, so far as it depends on us, been active in attempting to live peaceably with all? Where have we been content to live without the fruit of Jesus in this area of our lives? Where have we been quick to repay evil for evil? Where have we been very desirous of avenging ourselves when the Spirit of Jesus would have said, let's leave it to the wrath of God? Where has pride been the mark of our lives rather than humility? And here's the thing about this. Most of us don't intend to start wars with everyone around us. And that's rare. I mean, sometimes the circumstances of life create just unthinkable, I don't even know how to get out of this, it's so crazy. And that, of course, happens. But most of us don't intend at the outset to start wars with everyone around us. But my experience has been this. 
when we ignore the promptings of the Spirit of God to be at peace with people around us, small slights grow. Bitterness tends to grow like Florida mold when left unchecked. And many of us harbor slight hostility, annoyances, little grudges against people that we're not even aware that they're there because sometime in the past we have consistently made peace with ignoring the promptings of the Spirit and been comfortable with hostilities. And you'd never know it except for every time that person's name comes up. I'd encourage you to ask your friends. Say, hey, is there anybody who every single time they come up, you just notice that my spirit changes? Are you the kind of person who stays completely quiet until that person comes up and then the only thing you ever say is something snarky and bad? I think that it would be the Spirit of Jesus, the fruit of His Spirit in us that says we need to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall see God. Insofar as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We need to take seriously the commands of Scripture. We should not be consistently going to worship holding grudges. We should have confidence that the gospel is big enough and strong enough and sturdy enough for us to be candid with one another. It should be more common in our midst than anywhere else in the world to find people who are willing to admit sin, to seek reconciliation, to say, please forgive me, I want to be at peace with you. We cannot let this be the rare occurrence for those people who are just a little bit sentimental and feely and sensitive. But real, hearty, actual peace with brothers and sisters should be the hallmark of Christians. Here's the question. Are we preaching what Jesus preached, that is peace to all who are far and all who are near? Or do we content ourselves with living in the midst of chaotic hostility and sometimes even produce it? Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, says this very, very succinctly. It tells us, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. My experience has been that this is not easy. All you have to do is live in this world and listen, or live in this world and relate, and you will have a constant temptation to division. It will take us humbly submitting ourselves to Christ ruling in our hearts for peace to be the hallmark of who we are. I said the other week, would we be content being a productive, effective ministry machine of a church? Would we be content if we were all of that and people said, you know, here's just the thing, they're super unloving. I think the same question applies. Would we be content to be a super productive ministry machine, but we leave hostility and divisiveness and snarkiness in our wake? If so, we need to humble ourselves and ask the Spirit of God to rule in our hearts. Let's pray.
God, I pray that you would make us peacemakers. Maybe what I want to pray now is even for the, the desire for peace. God, we've felt hostility and division for so long, had broken relationships for so long. Many of us have given up hope. We forget. We forget to hope. What it would be like to be at rest, to have wholeness, to have things put back together. And I thank you that you have promised that you will eventually one day draw us to yourself and there will be perfect rest, perfect peace. I pray that here and now you would restore in us a desire and a longing for peace. That when we engage, especially those who are estranged from us, that we would not be desiring vengeance we're winning, we're lording it over, but we would be desiring reconciliation and restoration. God, convince us and convict us about our motives. I pray that we would be sturdy peacemakers, not weak or bending for the sake of a false peace, but, but confessing real sins, loving in real deep and tangible ways. We would be the kind of people who preach what Jesus preached. And when others come around us or look in, that they find, they find a kind of relationship, a kind of welcoming, a kind of humility here. We ask for that fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.